all familiar with the statements of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he says, This know also, reading from verse 1, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now he could talk about nuclear threat. He could talk of all the misery that are in the world, terrorism and the like. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking here about the peril, the spiritual peril. And of course we go through two, three and four with a list of tragic sinfulness. But what makes it so frightening is he's talking about the church of God. He's talking about the people of God. For he comes to verse 5 and he says having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. So this is not talking about the non-Christians. This is not talking about the atheists and the agnostics. It's talking about those that have a pretense of religion. Now, as we said last night, Satan already has those that are of this caliber in his army. He doesn't have to do another thing except just keep an eye that they don't be turned aside by some enthusiastic, spirit-filled, dedicated man or woman. And if he can find shepherds to place over them that will... Calm any thoughts that they have to change their ways. He'll be happy to do it. But I want to emphasize again that the most effective deceptions of Satan have been kept for the elect. And outside of the power of God, each one of us would be deceived. You know, we hear a lot today about NLP, this um, training, this neuro-linguistic programming in which many of our people around the world, pastors and now laity, are being trained in what many of them don't realize are hypnotic techniques and deceptions. I was reading over few months ago, the materials and the background and the development of this, and I just could not believe it. I couldn't believe how Christians could ever be deceived into having anything whatsoever to do with it. It's the kind of um, situation that we should flee like the plague. But people are being deceived. And... Um, as I looked at the, the list of those who, of course not Adventists, that were responsible for developing the neuro-linguistic programming, I saw this one was a practicing hypnotherapist and this one was a practicing hypnotherapist. I wonder what kind of principles they would likely put into such a program if they themselves are practicing hypnotherapists. Now, I studied a little hypnosis at the University of Sydney, I'm sorry to have to say. Suggestion and hypnosis. 
And it doesn't take long to see the, the efforts. You know, there was a time when people said that you would, under hypnosis, never do anything that was against your conscientious convictions. I remember being told that at the University of Sydney. It didn't make sense to me. Because obviously, the whole purpose of hypnosis is to take away your personal control centre and be controlled by somebody else. And if you lose your control centre, how well do you think you'll retain your moral and spiritual values? It just doesn't work that way. And um, the kind of deception, one of the founders or leaders in this was telling how he got the control of a crowd. said he was at a big auditorium and he was speaking to this crowd. I forget what it was on. It doesn't matter. And he just wanted to get the, that crowd in his hand. And as he was speaking, he stopped and looked up to the ceiling. Now, what do you think the people in the audience did? It's natural, isn't it? Especially, you're talking away, and there's a silence. And the lecturer looks up. Well, you can imagine what all the heads were doing. And he said, that's strange. And then went on with his lecture. A little later, he stopped again and looked up. That's very strange. Why do you think he was doing that? Do you think there was something very strange on the ceiling? No. But here were people desperately trying to discover what this strange thing was. He did it three or four times, he said, during that talk. And he said, I had them in my hand. Why? That sounds so infantile, doesn't it? It's a kind of little trick that you expect a, one child to play on another. <laughs> he had them in his hand, he said, because they thought I knew something that they didn't know. And I suppose they're waiting for the next time in case they could get a little further clue on what was so strange up on the ceiling. If you don't think that's deceptive, you think about it. That was a lie, wasn't it? Because there was nothing strange. And that was his very words. I had the audience in my hand. And once you've got them in their, your hand, you can manipulate them. The techniques that they use in this neuro-linguistic programming, or as it's often called, Lab 1 and 2, are so simple. But I want to tell you, if you get the opportunity to go, don't go. God is not blessed even if you go out of curiosity. I made a strong plea to the young people at Bozvar, never do something out of curiosity. Amen. 
That is Satan's number, well, way on the top of the list type of opportunity to get you trapped. If you know it's wrong or you think it may be wrong, don't do it. Don't go just to investigate. Satan is too subtle. I believe that he can hypnotize every single human being. Now it's said that there are some human beings that are so resistant to suggestion that they cannot be hypnotized. That might be true by a fellow human. But I don't believe Satan would find it impossible to hypnotize anyone. In the 8th volume of the testimony, we're told that minds will be hypnotized. Talking about our church. I think it's 133, if I remember correctly. You can check it. 8th volume, 133. Just put a question mark after the page. (coughs) Minds will be hypnotized. That means that all of us could be hypnotized. There's only one way to resist the hypnotic influence of Satan. And that's to have the mind of the one whom he cannot hypnotize. We must have the mind of Jesus Christ. If we have his mind, Satan cannot hypnotize us. I've got many people in the States that are saying, I am afraid to go to church. I know my pastor's been trained in this NLP. I'm afraid he might hypnotize me from the pulpit. And I can understand their fear. And I'm not suggesting that they should go to a man that has been trained in hypnosis. But you may not know that a man has been trained in hypnosis. But you do have a security if you have the mind of Jesus. If it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. Satan is hypnotizing men and women all over this world. You ever wonder why it's so difficult for some people to see the clearest testimony of the the scripture, and understand it. Now we say, as we said this earlier today, that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And that's true, but I also believe that many people are already hypnotized by Satan. That they cannot see the truth. Their minds have been lost to Christ. And I believe some of those are in our church. Now we're going to look again at this, this other area. All error is hypnotic. Have you noticed it? There's an attractiveness about error. Every form of error gains a following. And Satan is shooting at all of us. If he can't hit us on this error, he's trying another error. Would you have thought <coughs> that futuristic Um, interpretations of prophecy could ever invade the conservative basic Bible and spirit of prophecy Adventists we saw it happen through Desmond Ford and the um, new theology and that seemed about where it would end but Satan wasn't satisfied with that group He's just trying everything he can. When you think of of how Satan is trying through um, the God does not destroy philosophy, that has so much strength. By the way, over at um, Hengelo, I had to spend time very earnestly with one of the German ladies on that issue. She was a fine woman. 
but she had imbibed this God does not destroy theology. And um, it's a... I'm sorry? Yeah, well, <laughs> you don't think that I didn't quote texts like Genesis 6-7. I will destroy man whom I have created. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And that's talking about the flood. Or, and fire came down from God out of heaven and destroyed them. You know, it's so clear. It is to me and it is to you, perhaps. They're coming in. And it's attacking us. Now where did this futuristic interpretation... You know, the time setting that we talked about earlier today is united with futuristic concepts of prophetic interpretation. The two are indivisible. And also, literal interpretation of biblical time, prophetic time, is also married here. You've got them married together. Let us just trace the history again. I know I've before mentioned a little of this, but uh, I want to put it in this context this time. You remember when the Protestant Reformation began? The Roman Catholic leaders, the Vatican, was absolutely convinced that shortly some leaders, that is political leaders, kings of Europe, would rise up and crush this rebellion against the papacy. They'd always done it before. For centuries, this king and this elector and this prince and this duke and so on had risen up and put down these rebellions. But one, two, three, four, five years, six, ten years went by and no one was rising up with power to put down this Protestant Reformation. Not even Charles V, the Habsburg king, king of the... Holy Roman Empire. Not even Charles V was doing anything about it. Maybe it was because of his young age. At the time that Luther nailed, I think he was about 21, when Luther nailed his theses on the church door. And the Vatican had to start its thinking process all over again. It wasn't just carry on as usual. This wasn't, they weren't used to this situation where the secular states were not rising up en masse to defend them. And eventually, very belatedly, they got their act together and called the Council of Trent. 1545. Now I want you to get the date. What date did Luther nail his theses on the church door. Now this is nearly three decades later. That tells you how strange the circumstances were for the Vatican. They couldn't believe what was happening. And they didn't know what to do about it. And eventually the Council of Trent, as a desperate effort, was called. And in the Council of Trent, they fought over all sorts of issues. What was the Gospel? Which Bible, by the way? Which Manuscripts. And I just get so burdened when I see Adventists, even good Adventists, using these modern Bible translations which are built on the papist, corrupted, Eastern, Alexandrian, 
Greek manuscripts. I know that the King James is a little archaic in its language, but give me a little archaic for truth. And don't tell me it's too hard to understand. We've got to train our children. This is the only Bible my children have ever heard. At least the best of my knowledge, if they've heard anything else, it hasn't been at home and it hasn't been at Heartland Elementary School. And my boy actually started to read by reading the Bible. That was his first reader. And he learnt Genesis 1 and 2. In the end, he could just about quote them. He did, a lot of it. But that's what he learned to read. And I can tell you, at eight years of age, he's a far better reader than his father was at eight years of age, and I went to school at four. He started school the end of February or maybe the beginning of March this year. And I'm serious, he's a much better speller, a much better reader than I was at his age. Well, I remember my struggles as an eight-year-old in spelling and reading. In fact, it wasn't only as an eight-year-old. And um, I've never found it difficult to read the King James to the children. Or occasionally I'll stop to explain a word. But they don't say, Daddy, I can't understand that. You train them right from the beginning and those words just become natural to them. They understand it just as well as we. That's how I grew up. I didn't know that there was any other translation of the Bible when I was growing up in the church, at least until I was in my teenage years. And until there is a Bible in modern language that is at least as accurate as the King James, I'm going to stick to the King James. Amen. I don't expect the Bible to be put out because Satan won't allow it. He wants to get these modern corruptions before us. And um, they fought over other issues. But one of the greatest debates, of course, and discussions was over how to derail the Protestant Reformation. And there was one burden they had. You see that word there? Every Protestant reformer had identified the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy as the Antichrist of prophecy. Not one accepting. They may have disagreed on other things, but none disagreed on who was the Antichrist. And they all put the finger from Wycliffe onwards. Right down to the British reformers like Sir Isaac Newton over here at Cambridge or wherever it is in the direction from here and of course John Wesley. Didn't matter whether they're German or Swiss or Scottish or Bohemian or American, every reformer pinpointed the papacy. This is one reason why we've got this book out. That's why we've called it Antichrist is Here. The Protestants today don't believe that. They say it's some 
individual that rise at the end of time, rule in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, etc., etc. So I'm capturing their mind. By the way, we had a call just before I left Hartman to go overseas from a, um, a uh, radio evangelist from South Carolina who's on 24 stations in the United States. And he asked permission to use this book and advertise it on his radio stations. <laughs> that was an exciting phone call. By the way, he's not a Seventh-day Adventist. I haven't had any of the Seventh-day Adventists yet ask me <laughs> to put it on, hoping that it might happen. It'd be great if it did. Because this book is not only written for Adventists, it's written for non-Adventists. You know... The last revision of the, the Great Controversy was 1911, 80 years ago. By the way, it's just as relevant today as when it was written. But a lot of events have happened since 1911 which are just confirming every prediction and prophecy that Ellen White made, and the Bible made, of course, too. You think when 1911, the Lateran Treaty hadn't even been signed. How did she know the papacy was going to assume power like it's assumed today? I tell you, and this book um, it brings people up to date on um, how the papacy has grown and developed and the ecumenical movement. And it goes into the three glues that are bringing all the churches together. The glue of the charismatic movement. And going back onto that Vatican II, I didn't realize that there was the whole basis of the celebration movement in Vatican II. And here it is now flooding into our church. The ecumenical movement. I'm going to show you something tomorrow that may even shock you folks. Beautiful publication put out by the ecumenical movement. It's a B-E-M statement. Do you know what that is? Baptism, Eucharist and Ministry Statement. Do you realise scores of churches have signed their general agreement with that statement? Would you be shocked if the Seventh-day Adventist church is one of them? Tomorrow I'm going to share that with you, not by verbal innuendo. But I'm going to show you the booklet. The official publication from the World Council of Churches. I tell you, I get filled with righteous indignation when somebody, and I happen to know who it was, representing the Adventist church, though it's not stated in the book. No, it wasn't Bertie Beach. That would be probably what 
many would think. I believe, I feel betrayed. The very word Eucharist, is that a Protestant term? How would you feel if one of the, you saw the bulletin of a South Queensland Conference Church that said next week we will be celebrating the Eucharist? I tell you, brethren and sisters, every single deception that is coming to the Adventist Church, if we look at it, we'll probably find its origin in Catholicism or paganism before Catholicism. And you might say, this is critical of the church. No, brethren and sisters, I'm speaking out a heart that's rent for my church. Not for my church, for God's church. I mean, how far will we go in giving ground to the enemy? And if we're silent about it, brethren, and we know about it, and we're silent, then aren't we culpable? Don't we stand culpable if we know about something? I received a document some years ago from Brother Minier from Austria when he visited Hartland. And somehow I've misplaced it. And when I met him at Hengelo, I said, you've got to get me another one. By the grace of God, I now have it. And I don't intend to be silent on it. Now, if you don't want to be responsible, you better not be here tomorrow. But then willful negligence is as bad as willful disobedience. And here was the Roman Catholic Church trying to derail this identification of the Antichrist. While ever the Protestants believed the Roman Catholic Church was the Antichrist, there was absolutely no hope of getting them back into the fold under the papacy. That is central. That is the big issue. Getting the Roman, the Protestants, to forget who the Antichrist is. That's the issue, brethren and sisters. And I mean not just the Protestants. They've got to get the Orthodox churches to forget that. Everyone. In fact, they don't want the, the um, Hindus or the Buddhists or the Shintoists to know anything about it because they probably haven't been in the middle of it. And they, in that 18 years of the Council of Trent, you know the Roman Catholic bishops couldn't get a credible alternative? Because there were many bishops that knew very little about the Bible. So I suppose they had a hard battle. And they had to close that council in 1563 without having any alternative explanation of the Antichrist. And by the Antichrist, I'm including all the names that are used in the Bible for the Antichrist. The little horn. The man of sin. 
Babylon, the beast, the immoral woman and so on. All those different names. But putting them together under the name Antichrist. And so in desperation they gave the task of finding a new explanation that could be deceive the Protestants in the hands of the newly established elitist order, intellectual elitist order, and you know who that was. Can you imagine the blasphemy of the, the name of that order, the Society of Jesus? What blasphemy? You want to read the blasphemy of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, here they're saying the priests are, this is recent, this is not going back to the Middle Ages, this is 1977. The priests are so many gods that if Christ were in a confessional and a priest was in a confessional and both said, um, Ego te absolvo, I absolve you, both penitents would be equally absolved. Is that blasphemy? Just full of... If you, you can't get away from the description. I don't know any other, other um, organisation that could possibly fit all the characteristics like this does. Well, anyway, it took 22 years before the Jesuits could get what they thought was a credible answer. Now, I want you to understand that that's a 40-year period of trying to get a, a deception on the Antichrist. It took them 40 years. These are minds that are honed in by Satan. So even Satan must have been having a hard battle. The characteristics are so clear. They fit the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy every little bit of the way. There's no other organization. How do you get around it? And you remember, who was the Jesuit that found this alternative explanation? Now, he was the head of the, or the founder, Ignatius Leola was the founder of the Jesuits. But who was the, the Jesuit that came up with this alternative explanation on the Antichrist? Yes, Francisco Ribera, the brilliant Jesuit in, eight, in 1585. Now, Let's look at what he did. He had to do some fancy footwork on prophetic interpretations. And what he did was throw the Antichrist down in the future. Then no one can blame the Roman Catholic Church. No one can identify the Roman Catholic Church. It's some one single individual at the end of time. Sounded pretty good. But to do that, if you have a day-year principle, you're in great trouble. Could one individual reign for 1,260 years? You see the problem he was in? So we've got to do a little more fancy footwork. And then forget that prophecy uses prophetic time a day for a year and say, no, this is literal time. Now, you see where some of the futurists in the Adventist church are getting in league? You see, they're talking about literal time. That's Jesuit mentality. That's futurism. Historicism is never built on a 
a day for a day, it's a day for a year. Or a year for a day, perhaps is the right way to put it. And when his thesis was reviewed by 1590, they had published it. That was written in Latin. That's, of course, what any theological treatise of the day would have been. And then they sent copies of it all over the universities of Europe. And by the way, a copy landed at Oxford University and a copy landed at Cambridge University. Now you'd think that the Protestants would have destroyed it on the spot. That's what they should have done. Remember, it arrived here during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. But no Protestant was deceived. hundred years there wasn't a Protestant to take up that foolish deception. Two hundred years. But it began to break with the French Revolution. Perhaps I should point out that also the second Jesuit, Louis de Alcazar, came up with the preterist view. His thesis was published in 1604. 14 years after Ribera's, and indeed Ribera was then dead. And he said, no, the Antichrist was this weak Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, that reigned in the 2nd century BC. And who sacrificed a pig in the sanctuary and they had to rededicate it after he was driven out. Well, you try and put the facts, meet the facts there. Where's the 1260 days? Well, even if it's literal days, where's the 2003? You know, what can you fit in of any of the time prophecies? No one can find anything to fit in. And in any case, the, the little horn power was to be exceeding great. You remember that the uh, first power in Daniel 8 was the, the ram, and he was to be great. That was Medo-Persia. The second animal was the he-goat, and he was to be very great. And the third power, the little horn, was to be exceeding great. Now, I ask you, was Antiochus Epiphanes greater than, than Alexander the Great? It's ridiculous. Most children in school have heard of Alexander the Great. Most of them have never heard of Antiochus Epiphanes. It's just so foolish. But by the way, that was the first thesis that Protestants took up. De Alcazar's preterist, as it's called, or the past view. Either way, of course, the Roman Catholic Church is scot-free. They didn't care which one you took up as long as you took up one of them. And it was the preterist view that was first taken up. And some of you will remember the, the French priest... Uh, Richard, I think it was, Simon, who decided to undermine Protestants' um, unwavering confidence in the Word of God. And he was the founder of higher criticism, trying to find all flaws in the Bible. 
or inconsistencies in the Bible, to undermine the con- so that they would go to human tradition. After all, the church put her- the Roman Church put human tradition above the Word of God. And where he started off was the Book of Genesis. It was fascinating. He said, he pointed out that two names were used for God. Which we translate Lord and we translate God. In the book of Genesis. And he made it sound as if there had to be two authors. One that used the word Lord, one that used the word God. In fact, the five times in the book of Genesis... The uh, two are put together as the Lord God didn't seem to faze him. It's just like in the New Testament. Sometimes the word Jesus is used. Sometimes the word Christ is used. And sometimes Jesus Christ. Does that mean that there are different authors? It's just so foolish. But the highly intellectual theologians of Germany some of them, actually bought this foolishness. I found that the more intelligent and the more scholarly and the more theologically elevated men seem to be, the more naive they are. No wonder God says the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Well anyway, that's a sidetrack, but it needs to be said. Because even today, the modernists tend to hold the preterist view because they say, well, you don't need any miracles then. Because really, the book of Daniel wasn't written in the 6th century. It was written in the 2nd century. It was really recording what had happened. And it was written just after Antiochus Epiphanes had been there and had desecrated the temple. And, of course, the, um, the author of the book of Daniel wanted to make out that it had been written before the event happened. But indeed, it was written after the event happened. So you don't need to talk about divine revelation or inspiration or miracles. Here it is. He's just writing history. He's not writing prophecy. And that's how we get these higher critical comments on the book of Daniel today. But still no one was buying this this futurist stuff at all. Until the French Revolution. And when the French Revolution bought the power of Rome to her knees and when Pius VI was taken captive and when it looked as if the papacy was either going to to decease or at least be as feeble as could be some of the Protestants started to wonder whether this this could be talking about the, the papacy all these powerful events and Protestant theologians Protestant scholars, Protestant preachers became weaker and weaker on the identification of the Roman Catholic Church. There was, they couldn't, of course they didn't read Revelation 13.3. If they'd have read Revelation 13.3, they wouldn't have had any problem with the collapse there in 1798. They would realise that the deadly wound had come. Now they should have been preaching that one day the papacy is going to revive and it's going to become more powerful than it's ever been before. That's what they should have been preaching. They'd have followed the word of God. But you know, theologians are more likely to follow the word of their fellow theologians than they are the word of God. And um, 
But then we come to the 1820s, over here at Oxford University. I tell you, Oxford University has done more to destroy true Protestantism, in my estimation, than any other institution in this world. In the 1820s, we had these, this little clique of Anglican professors who really had their hearts set on the reunification with Rome. Anglo-Catholicism. Well, it was just pre-Oxford movement. It was going to lead into the Oxford movement. The Oxford movement really didn't start till about 1833, at least officially. But this is the 1820s, and here was <coughs> Professor S.R. Maitland. He seemed to be the ringleader. And Professor James Berg, Professor William Todd, those three were the leaders of this movement. And they started, of all things, at Oxford University to start calling for the consideration of the reunification of the Church of England with the Church of Rome. But you know, in, eight, in the 1820s, there were plenty of evangelical Protestant Anglicans here in England. And they rose up in great horror against the thought. We could never reunite with Rome. Rome is the Antichrist. Well, that should have settled the issue, shouldn't it? <clears throat> Satan t is willing to take his time. Look where we've come to in the Anglican Church now. And we're now 170 years after this. Somehow, some way, whether he knew it was there or not, I have no idea. But Maitland got hold of Rivera's thesis that had been there in Oxford University for over 230 years, gathering dusk and no one taking any notice of it. He had it translated into English. And in no time they were teaching this perverse Jesuit doctrine at Oxford University. Now, the seeds were being sown. You know, here are the, the young seminarians. They're going to be the young curates scattering over England. Then they're going to become the vicars and the rectors around England. And some of them are going to become later the bishops. Doesn't take long. That kind of infiltration, we've seen it in our own churches. We see myriads of our pastors that no longer even understand what the Adventist message is about. And I don't altogether blame them, because all you have to do is mistrain them at our colleges and our seminaries. And most of them somehow don't have sufficient understanding to go to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and find out where they've been mistrained, miseducated. And they certainly, the Anglican Ministers obviously were no better than Adventist ministers are today. And then, of course, came 1833. And there in St. Mary's Chapel came one of the most dramatic sermons 
presented dealing with the spiritual and moral decline of the Anglican Church. Now, you've got to realize the kind of thinking that there was amongst the Anglicans in England of that time. Think of how the nonconformists had broken away and, and, and think of how the Methodists had set up. The Anglican Church was more and more becoming the, uh, the less reformed church. And others were being to the front in reform. And there was much alarm at what was happening in the schisms that had led to some of these breakaways, such as the Methodist movement. And more and more people were looking to the split uh, as being the result of moral and spiritual decadence within the Anglican Church. And there probably was a lot of truth on that. But sitting in the congregation that day was one of the most brilliant young Anglican priests, tutors at Oxford University. What was his name? John Henry Newman. And it's obvious that that made a profound impact on Newman. By the way, the address was given by the Reverend Preble. And as we know, the next many years saw a gradual but inevitable change in the thinking of John Henry Newman until he decided to give up the Anglican priesthood and by 1845 he had travelled to Rome and was consecrated a priest of the Roman Catholic Church. By this time the Oxford movement was in full flight and really the Oxford movement was simply the re-Catholicising of Oxford University. Or not by overtly saying we're Catholic. But that was the establishment of, of, in strength of the Anglo-Catholic movement within the Anglican Church. We call it the High Church of England. Newman was so effective and so successful in being such an ambassador to the Roman Catholic Church, after all, he was a convert, he had all the friends, he had all the associations. So grateful was the Roman Catholic Church for it that in 1879, the then Pope Leo XIII elevated Newman from the common priesthood and created him a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, how many times does a man come from the common priesthood and is made one of the cardinals? In those days, the cardinals were limited to 70 around the world. And in a huge church, 70 isn't many. Remember this, they didn't have to retire at 80 like they do today. He was created a cardinal. That was the gratitude of the Roman Catholic Church for what this man had done in undermining the Anglican Church of England. 
Now, I might just digress for a moment. You can bear a personal experience. Back when I was around about 23 years of age, this, this event happened. In Sydney, every second Friday night, the Adventists had a youth program right down in the city in a hall right opposite St Paul's Cathedral, the Anglican <coughs> Cathedral for Sydney. In fact, the building where it was held was owned by the Anglican Church. And on the first floor, this meeting was held. I went once in a while, not frequently, but this Friday night I decided I would go. I got in the lift, went up to the first floor, walked out, and it was a strange situation. The lift went straight into the room. Just opened into the room, not into a hallway, but straight into the room. And I walked out, and in moments, I'm in three or four steps, and I realised this could not be the night when the youth fellowship met, because here were all these Anglican priests, and obviously one or two of them were bishops. You could see the, the purple vestment. And there were some laity there too. And I was, for a moment, uncertain what to do. They were all standing around talking. But it seemed like it was something interesting was going to go on. And just as I was trying to decide whether to make a kind of an embarrassed retreat, the chairman, Canon Arrowsmith, very prominent Anglican of the day, called everyone to order and asked if everyone would take seats. So I sat down. There was a moment or two before all order was restored and the meeting started and I just kept looking ahead, hoping no one would ask a question. But one thing I noticed, there were no other young people in that meeting. Everyone seemed at least middle-aged. And here I was, about 23 years of age. But my best efforts to just look straight ahead didn't help me because the man next to me uh, said, um, which parish are you from? <laughs> I was so thankful he didn't say, which parish are you representing? <laughs> that would have been... Oh, I said, I come from Osman. Oh, who's the rector there? By the grace of God, I knew the name of the rector. <laughs> because I passed his church frequently and in fact he'd had a series on prophecy that he'd run and I'd gone two Sunday nights to hear what he had to say about these prophecies and it wasn't too bad. So I was able without any dishonesty and by the grace of God before he could ask me any questions Karen Narrowsmith was in charge of the meeting. So I was there like all the other delegates wondering what the meeting was all about. I'm, and it was meant to be a high-level meeting. And the meeting was a simple meeting. Canon Arrowsmith addressed them and said, we are facing the greatest crisis in the history of the Anglican Church in Australia. Every, pari every um, diocese and archdiocese in Australia is now Anglo-Catholic 
with the exception of the Archdiocese of Sydney. I was all ears. The Archdiocese of Sydney was the last bastion of evangelical Anglicanism in Australia. Or there are a few isolated churches, but as a, a diocese, an archdiocese, and his concern was if we do nothing about it, in 10 years we'll be overtaken by Anglo-Catholicism. Well, my heart went out to these men as they anguished. The coadjutor Bishop of Sydney, Bishop Mole, who later became the Archbishop of Sydney. You know, it's a strange thing. We have more Anglican Archbishops in Australia than England does. I've never quite worked out why there's only two Archbishops in England. And um, <coughs> it um, proceeded as these men. I don't even remember if there was even one woman there. I don't think there was. They struggled and anguished on what they could do, one, to preserve the Archdiocese of Sydney. And they're pointing out this church was Anglo-Catholic within the Archdiocese of Sydney and this one and this one. They were beginning to scatter within this major archdiocese. How we can stop this? And then the other concern was how we can do something to try and turn these other dioceses and archdioceses back to evangelical Anglicanism. Well, I can tell you, many years have transpired since then, and they haven't succeeded. There's still a reasonable presence of evangelical Anglicanism in Sydney, but only there. The work of the Oxford movement has done a thorough work. And you know even in this country, I don't know what people, I mean many Anglicans wouldn't know what they were, I don't think, whether they were high or low church, whether they were Anglo-Catholic or whether they were Protestants, or whether they were evangelical Protestants or what they are. But here was this movement, and now the Jesuits have got their foothold in the Anglican Church through the Oxford movement. And their prophetic interpretation no longer is training the curates in the truth about the Antichrist. Oh, how important that has been to what has taken place today. But then you remember the experience. of what happened a little later. John Nelson Darby, born in London in 1800, just one year older than John Henry Newman. He goes across to Dublin and trains as a lawyer in Trinity College. But he is attracted to the ministry and becomes a curate at Wicklow. in 1825 but in two years he's disillusioned with the Anglican church and what he feels is the moral state of the Anglican church but just before that has started in Dublin the Brethren movement also a group of men burdened by the problems of the Anglican church now remember that Dublin is a stronghold if you want to call it that way of Protestantism in 
the Irish Republic, what is now the Irish Republic. Or, now I think about 10% claim to be Protestants there in Dublin. These men were deeply concerned. And after resigning his curacy there in um, Wicklow, Darby joins the Brethren, about 27 years of age at the time. And in no time, his interest in prophecy becomes apparent and he became one of the spokesmen on prophecy for the um, Brethren movement there in Dublin. After a while, he made a journey down to Plymouth. Of course, as you know, eventually his branch of the Brethren was going to be called the Plymouth Brethren. And as he goes down there to Plymouth, um, he gets into a lot of um, uh, differences with some of the other Brethren. And really, he's considered rather extreme amongst the Brethren. Then he decided that he would study go and do some investigations at the universities. He went first to the University of Paris. Then he went to Cambridge here. And the last one he hit was Oxford, right at the blossoming of the Oxford movement. And it's as obvious as anything could be obvious that there he imbibed the Roman Catholic Jesuit-inspired, now Anglican-taught, futuristic concepts of the Antichrist. And for the rest of his life, his role was to present that. Now, if you go around England, you'll see quite a few, every now and again, Plymouth Brethren Church. I don't know whether they're still around, but I suppose they are. Not many? Oh. In this area, in their is quite a lot. Mm. In Australia, I've seen them every now and again, the Plymouth Brethren. But I've never seen one in the United States. In fact, when I've asked audiences, and I've asked many of them, I've found one or two people that claim that they've seen Plymouth Brethren churches in the United States. But they're, if they're there, they're as scarce as hen's teeth. But Derby's greatest influence was not in England. Not in Switzerland, where he spent quite a bit of time, but nor in New Zealand or in the Caribbean, where he visited, but was in the United States of America. He made five epic visits to the United States. And he didn't so much start churches as infiltrate the mainline churches, you know, like the cuckoo laying the egg in another bird's nest. You know, that's the, by far the easiest way to get, a, get your movement going. After all, you don't have to build church, you don't have to build colleges, you don't have to... You've got it all there for you. That's what the charismatic movement did. That's why it went so much faster than the Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostal movement uh, denominationalised not the charismatic movement, just invaded the Jewish synagogues, the Roman Catholic churches, the, the mainline churches, the, the conservative churches, and laid its egg wherever it could lay its egg. And that's why it's been so much more... And by the way, the Adventist church. 
I can put up with the rest hardly, but I can put up with it. But to think that the cuckoo's laying its egg in the Adventist church, that's something I find almost in, uh, completely intolerable. Amen. And that's what Darby did. Especially did he make an impact upon the Presbyterian and the Congregational Church in the United States. Especially the Congregational Church. And his big effort was made in St. Louis, Missouri. And now the Jesuits, they're, they're patient, aren't they? You imagine. That thesis was there in Oxford University like a time bomb ready to explode. And it did. And now it's not only in the Anglican thinking... It's in the mainline Protestants of America. You think Satan was satisfied that with that success? No. Five years after Darby's last visit to the United States, Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, in 1879, was converted at a Dwight L. Moody crusade in no less than St. Louis, Missouri. He'd been such a discredited lawyer. He'd had to flee to Canada because of corruption when he was attorney. What was he? Not attorney general. High office in Kansas, still in his late 20s because of corruption. He'd been in jail for embezzlement. But now he becomes a congregationalist and the very next year he becomes a congregational minister and goes down to Dallas, Texas. Well, no one wanted to be pastor of a congregational church in Dallas, Texas. The Southerners didn't want anything to do with the congregational church. That was a northern church and they didn't have much regard for it. But Schofield was a brilliant fellow. No question about that. He played up the fact that he'd spent a year in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. It was true that they didn't say, tell them about the fact that he had asked for a discharge and revealed to them that he was born in Michigan and they gave him a discharge on the grounds that he'd come from the North. But Darby, I mean uh, Schofield, took a church in a dilapidated, almost shack, of 18 members, and in no time it was a beautiful church of 500 members. In a city that was only 10,000 population in 1880. Can you imagine Dallas only being 10,000? When you go to that city today, but that's what it was, 10,000 in 1880, approximately. And he got some of the elitist families of Dallas. Well, his notoriety increased, and he was invited to be the pastor of the Northam Church in Massachusetts. That was the home church of Dwight L. Moody. And a year or two after he was invited to be the pastor and became the pastor there, Moody died at the age of 60. And Schofield performed the funeral service. If he hadn't been known before, he was certainly well known now. For all over the world, the funeral service of Dwight L. Moody's was reported. And people started to ask, who is this man Schofield that was so important to be chosen to preach the funeral service for Dwight L. Moody? And he never looked back. Later he became, by the way, a Presbyterian minister, but 
the time he was still Congregationalist. He came over to Oxford University in 1905 with a special project to present to Oxford University Press. For a number of years he conceived this idea of the reference Bible and he placed this idea before the leaders of the Oxford University Press in 1905 and they gave tacit agreement that they would publish it. Now that was important to get such a prestigious press to be responsible. But why wouldn't they? He was using their same Jesuit concepts in his explanations of prophecy. They would be delighted. In 1907, in Long Island, he signed the agreement with the American um, representation of the Oxford University Press. In 1909, his first reference Bible was out with all this Jesuit-inspired futurism all the way through it. Now, I've never seen a 1909 Schofield Bible, but I have seen a 1917. That was his revision of the 1909. The only revision that he did, he died in 1922. And um, I want to tell you, it's just full of futurism. No question about it. Now don't compare it with the 1968 revision, which he of course had nothing to do with. You open the thing up, the 1917, and the very first text of scripture, you'd close that Bible. Because it treats Genesis 1-1 as theistic evolution. Right, the very first two comments. Well, it's the second comment, but it's on the first verse. He is supporting theistic. He's saying, of course, this does not conflict with the great ages of evolutionary development. Right, in the 1917 edition. And this... These Bibles were sold by the millions by Cole Porters throughout the United States, especially in the South. Now, what is the South of the United States? The Bible Belt. That's where the conservative Christians are, the Baptists, the Church of Christ, and so on. And I want to tell you, in no time, that Bible had done its work. (laughs) The people, the simple country people reading it, they took the comments to be just as inspired as the words themselves. Oh, that's a dangerous thing when we read commentaries. We must not think that the comments are inspired the way the Bible itself is. And suddenly, within the space of a decade or two, two at the most, not only had Jesuitism invaded the the Anglican church, Not only had it invaded the mainline churches, it was now rampant and perhaps most militantly taught in the conservative Protestant churches. Was Satan happy with that? Was he satisfied? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. No, Satan wasn't satisfied. He still had another territory to attack. What was that? The Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now he's tested out and he's tried it all out. He's measured it all out. 
He's tried. He's seen the reaction of human beings. And of course it came in with the liberal wing of the Adventist church. Where else would he start? And of course it wasn't said that we don't believe in, in um, historicism, but we believe in historicism and futurism. You know, we have a splendid quote in here from Ellen White where she said to a man that was saying, oh, I still believe in the historical approach to prophecy, but I also believe there's a, a futuristic interpretation. Ellen White didn't buy that. Listen, you can't put error with truth. I've had too many of those who are presenting these futuristic interpretations now tell me exactly the same thing. Listen, I still believe in the historicist view. Ford said he believed in all three. Preterist, historicist, and futurist. Well, there's eclecticism for you if you want. In fact, uh, we had a dialogue on the phone two, two or three months ago. He was very upset with what I had written on this in Firm Foundation magazine. And he said, you've misrepresented me and you've misrepresented F.F. F. Bruce. Well, I said, I'll write to him. And I wrote to him, but my letter got there about the time F.F. F. Bruce died. So I never did get a response, as you can understand. And so when we were talking again, he got back and, I, and he said, I said, come on, I said, you can't tell me. I said, you've written in your thesis. I've read it, Des, that the man of sin of, of um, 2 Thessalonians 2 is not a personage of the parts or, or any succession of personages. It's clear you're saying it's not a pope or it's not a succession of popes. It's some um, individual that will rise in the future. I said, that's futurism. And I said, Bruce passed that thesis. He said, Bruce was not a futurist. He was a preterist. So I said, well, I'm glad to write a retraction. And some of you might have seen the retraction that I wrote where I pointed out that the preterist view is just as Jesuit-oriented and, and um, originating as was the futurist view. It doesn't matter. They're both from the Jesuits, and either is inaccurate. And Satan got in amongst our intellectuals and our <coughs> scholars through Ford and others that support him. But I never dreamt that he'd make an inroads into the... Well, I, I hate to use that word conservative. That's, that's not true, because faithful people are the most liberal people in the world. They're liberal in their service, they're liberal in their offerings, they're liberal in their love. You know, so I don't know where we get branded as conservatives. But um, I suppose those words have different connotations. But I'm talking about the faithful. I never dreamt that he'd ever get a toehold there. But Satan wasn't satisfied with the liberal and the worldly and the Laodicean. He got another group targeted. And where the target where the prime target of Satan today. Oh, we've got to be careful when new ideas come. We've got to be so, so alert. This is a time when Jesus said that if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. And I am just so saddened by the number of fine Adventists that are being trapped by this futurism. And you'll notice 
They're doing exactly what Rabira did. They don't realize it. They don't think for one moment they're following Rabira, but it's exactly the same principle. No, yeah, oh yes, we believe in the 1260-day medieval reign, but you can never make Revelation 13, 5, 42 months there ever belong to the medieval reign of the papacy. And they'll take you through Revelation 13 and they'll say, look, this is all chronological. Do you believe that Revelation 13 is strictly chronological? Let's have a look. You've got to be ready for these kind of subtle things. How many people are for for say, yeah, well, then we come through and we've got the sands of the sea and we've got the beast and then we come to the deadly wound. We're up to 1798 and then the, the, the wound is healed so we're coming down into the 20th century and therefore the 42 months must be right at the end of time. Don't believe that, brethren and sisters. Look, you've got verse 11 with the lamb-like beast coming up out of the earth. That goes back to the 18th century with the rise of the United States. Or you come to the last verse, the number of the, uh, the beast is the number of a man, number is 600, three score and six. Is that just at the end time or has that been that way for, for centuries? Don't let anyone teach you that this is strictly chronological. Rarely is prophecy, some prophecies go in a chronological order, but Revelation rarely, especially these kind of prophecies, go chronological. But the, the general impact is there. You've got just a repetition of Daniel 7.25 here in verses 5 through 7 of Revelation. But I'm here to tell you that the time setting... The three and a half years and also the 2300 days as literal days and the three and a half, the last half week of the 70 week, that all comes out of Jesuit theology. Now knowing that origin, that's enough for me even if I didn't know the statements of Ellen White. Warning against them. We're dealing with deceptions. Brethren and sisters, all of this is meant to get the whole world under the beast and his image. And I want to tell you, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is part of the target of the Pope. As you know, in Malachi Martin's book, he talks about the Adventists. He's after us. And the tragedy is he's going to get most of us. I pray none in this room. But except for the remnant, except those whose names are enshrined in the Lamb's Book of Life, everyone's going to bow down to him. I don't care how much you know, if you haven't dedicated your life totally and fully, if Jesus isn't the captain of every moment of your living, you're going to bow down and worship this beast power. The Bible says it. Knowledge has not got anything to do with it. It's whether you've got your loyalty in the right place. That's the issue. 
That's why I talk about these things. I just pray that, that if you don't have these three books or any one of them, that you will get them. Adventism Unveiled, which takes up those, those issues so strongly of the time prophecies. And this, that's full of the deceptions, or I shouldn't say full. I'm sure that every time you turn around, he's got a new deception. We'll soon have to write a second edition of this, or at least a second volume, with the new deceptions that he's throwing at the people. And um, the Antichrist. But I'm, uh, uh, this follows what God's true interpretation of prophecy is. As I said, it's a, if you like, a continuation in the events that have confirmed the great controversy. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm just praying that you'll all be here tomorrow. Because I'm going to be talking heart to heart tomorrow. Our sister down here said she heard that um, I, pre I screamed when I preached. <laughs> well, sometimes I do get pretty excited when I preach, that's true. <laughs> But tomorrow it's so sober that I don't think I'm going to be raising my voice very often. We're going to be talking heart to heart. I don't know how the Spirit will lead, but because we're going to talk about our own precious church and what the responsibility we have as laymen. Why the church manual should never have been produced. Why we should never have had a statement of beliefs. Why we must never allow a hierarchical system to mature in this church. None of these things belong to the planning of God. Why it would be vastly better if there were no such individuals as church pastors. That might sound radical. I don't mean there'd be no such individuals as pastors. I'm not, I believe there should be many pastors, but no church pastors. Now, I'm not talking heresy here. I'm talking what I grew up how, what the church was like when I was a youth growing up in the church. I was probably 14 years old. So many things seemed to happen about when I was 14 when we received our first church pastor. And the church has never been the same since. And I'll explain why tomorrow. We're going to talk about the threat to the membership of those faithful brethren and sisters who attend the Norwich Church. I'm going to talk about it. They probably don't want me to talk about it in some ways. We're going to talk about it. We're not going to just stand by and let faithful members be just treated as if they're outcasts. Amen. 
while unfaithful members in our churches all over the world are continuing as if everything is all fine and dandy. It's not to be. Why sh should we be letting God down by just taking this? I don't want anyone to fight for himself. That's only Satan and his people fight for themselves. But if we're fighting for Christ and for his truth and for his righteousness and for his message, we're in a crusade that God will endorse. And I'm not here to condemn those who are thinking take this action. Many people feel they're doing the work of God when they were sending people to the to the stake. I want you to realize what they thought they were doing. It was the greatest role that the Roman Catholics could do to send people to the stake. They were honoring God in the greatest way and getting rid of these heretics, they thought. They put that above the mass and above every other ordinance of the church as the greatest work they were doing for Christ. Because Paul thought the same, didn't he? When he was holding the coats, the stoning of Stephen. So that's nothing new. Brethren and sisters, if we really love the Lord and this message, we just don't become passive. We retain our love. We retain our Christian dignity and Christian attitudes. We can do none other else if we're motivated by Christ. But we can't ask, allow Satan to get it that easy. That's the issue. Well, that's all tomorrow. I want to do something tonight. I know it's getting late, but... You've been very patient with me today, so I'm craving a little more patience. The camp meeting at Hengelo and the youth camp meeting at Bozvar has absolutely ignited me with the conviction that we have to get the cream of the youth of Europe trained at Hartland back here in Europe to be that army of youth. Remember, we grey hairs are not going to lead the final march. You realise that? At least most of us are because Ellen White said it's going to be mainly the youth who will finish the work. I don't know what age youth comes, but... Um, I've got a seeking suspicion that I'm beyond the youth age. I don't like to admit that. It's hard to admit, isn't it? You never feel that old. You young people, don't get the idea that when you get to my age you'll feel that you're like a patriarch. <laughs> I don't feel that way, yes. You mentioned the 91-year-old youth. Yes. Oh, yes, I know. Oh, we're going to have... Listen, as I often tell the young people, I, 
praying to God that I'll be one of the Joshua's and Caleb's that'll go in with the young people into the promised land. I've got ambitions there, brother. Don't make any mistake about it. And there are going to be older people, of course, in the final trust, but it's going to be largely the youth. And I just recognise that we've got to get these young... I said in, in Hengelo, I want to get 30 or 40 of the cream of Europe and train them so they can come back and, and really be the leaders. And when, I, when we dialogued on this at um, Bozvar, and I made an appeal for those to be willing to give up everything to be full-time guests in the ministry, somewhere close to about 30, I didn't count them, but it must be about 30 young people. Of course, quite a few of them from behind, the, um, not behind the Iron Curtain anymore, but from former Iron Curtain countries. And I know that these young people don't have the finance. But I inspired them with one thought. I said, young people, if you believe God is calling you to get that training, you do everything you can. It might seem the most feeble amount of money possible. But you do everything you can. And I know we've got a God who will do the rest. But if you sit back and say it can't be done, you have not the faith of Jesus. But while I was in Germany, I was given, thank you, total just over 11,000 marks for this project. Now that's somewhere around 6,000 US dollars. In Bozvar, I was given $5,000. That's $11,000. It's starting to rise. By the way, I've been promised more from Germany. How much more, I don't know. But I don't want to leave here at Gazi without giving the British an opportunity to do something. We need a fund. As I say, to me, the two great needs that I saw, and one of them doesn't affect Britain, is getting translators to get the material into the foreign, and the, you know, the non-English languages of Europe. And the second was getting a core of youth trained to be the, that leader so that they can come to Europe and then the majority will be trained here. We've got to have a solid institution where they know true Christian education, where they know this truth, they're unwavering, and they can bring the others to bear upon this. So that there cannot be this deviation that comes theologically. Now, I got two from the European, that's the continental Europeans. I always sort of hardly think of English as Europeans, but I suppose... You don't either. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, European, I'm meaning the Continentals. There were two great fears that the, the parents expressed to me. One was that their young people had come over to America and marry Americans. That scared the wits out of them. And I can understand that. They want them back in Europe. 
and they fear. And that was the second thing, that they'd lose them to America. And I said, look, if you send no one over there, you'll get none back. I can't guarantee that all are going to come back. No way I could guarantee that. But you can rest assured that our only burden will be to see them to come back to Europe and to do everything to stop them getting into romantic attachments. We, I was going to say, don't encourage that. We greatly discourage it, as Cindy well knows. And um, because we too want to see them come back to Europe. We don't have enough in America, that's true. But at least there are some there that are already trained. But this continent of Europe has to be... I tell you, and, and these people can come back. Some of them will be can do the translating. Some of them will be evangelists, teachers or whatever, health educators. But as a group, they could have a tremendous school where all the European youth could be trained. 